buffs welcome in to the newly named Howell Stern Show here yeah. on Radio 1190. We're talking sports. We're talking buffs. Crazy win over Nebraska last weekend that has to have every CU fan going crazy. We'll get into that. And obviously th with the Denver Broncos season kicking off as well, we'll have to talk a little bit about their long-term success as well. That's obviously in question, but good news is we saw forever buff Philip Lindsay get great. We'll go into that. And obviously we'll talk about the one Denver sports team that's actually in the meat of their season right now, entrenched in a playoff race, the Colorado Rockies. Alongside Chase Hell, I'm your host, Jack Stern. Hell writes for 25 at 7 Sports um, as part of with the Buff Stampede. And Chase, where can we find your work in case any of the viewers want to find it? Buffstampede.com. Um, pretty easy there. Just You can search my name. I'm all over the message board. Uh, you'd probably search my name on Google, and you'd find a few articles too. So. Okay, that sounds good. One of the things that we're going to talk about to begin, though, um, back by viewer de demand is high school sports. We'll start off there with the Fairview High School football team. They lost to Chase's alma mater, Thunder Ridge, 27-24 last Friday. The Grizzlies. Yeah, the Grizzlies. They're now 2-1 and one on their season. But the big storyline there has been quarterback Aiden Atkinson, who's received eight offers from college teams thus far. He's a junior, correct? He's, he's in his junior season. Yep. And he's received four Power 5 offers including the CU buffs right now 24-7 uh, sports has them ranked is the best uh, pro style quarterback in the 16th best pro style quarterback in the nation which is pretty high uh, it'll be interesting to see if he goes to CSU or CU I've heard from a couple sources that Kurt Roper is recruiting him heavily to join a very crowded quarterback room that could get even more crowded when considering that Steven Montez may return for his senior year but what have you seen out of Atkinson so far well, I've been itching to get to see him live. Um, that is one thing on my list to do this high school football season. So I haven't gotten to do that yet. But just through tape, you can tell uh, he's he's got an absolute cannon. I don't I don't really like the way that he throws the ball. It's a little bit of a delayed delivery. He comes around a little bit on it. But those are the types of things that you can work on. Uh, he can throw it all over the football field, which is something that not many high school quarterbacks can do. And so that's got to be what Coach Roper loves in him. I know that he's, he's pretty much their number one target uh, for that 2020 class at quarterback. You can only take one. So they've been recruiting him pretty heavily. Um, they have some other guys on their list, but some of those guys haven't even been offered by CU. They've just been showing a lot of interest. So I think they're waiting on Aiden to kind of make a decision or show his interest here. And on the other side of Boulder, Boulder High School beat Mountain Range. 10 nothing. It was a very low-scoring affair. They advanced to 2-1 on the season. They'll play their next game at their home turf against Denver East if any of you guys want to go out and show your support for our local team. But let's let's shift gears a little bit to Ty Evans. He's the highly touted prospect. Are we going to see him on the field in Boulder soon? I know Steven Montez probably going to come back for his senior year. But behind him, I mean, the depth chart is pretty pretty packed. Sam, no You have Sam Neuer, who next year will be a redshirt junior. You have Tyler Lytle, who will be a redshirt sophomore. Then you have Blake St Stenstrom, who's likely going to redshirt this year. He'll also be in the mix. Where does Ty Evans fit fit in there? Because coming in, he'd probably be fourth on the depth chart. But a lot of people are saying that he has gotten offers where he could potentially go in and start right away. Where does he stand? It's a very interesting situation there. Um, it's, it's just tough to tell because 
there's a lot of people that are, are saying that he's better than Blake Sundstrom right now. Um, I've gotten to see him throw in practice. I haven't gotten to see him throw in a game yet. Um, that's something I'm also trying to get out to do. He hasn't gotten off to a great start. He threw three picks against Pine Creek um, in their opener, in their opening loss. He threw five interceptions this past weekend against Pueblo. Um, it, it just hasn't been that great for his team so far and himself. They haven't really been living up to expectations. That's something that you, you really expect to turn around just off of how good their season was last year. But um, as far as where he'll fall in the depth chart, he's going to enroll early. I know that for sure, which will definitely benefit him. He'll get all of spring practice, and I'm sure after spring we'll kind of know where he sits with Blake Sandstrom, Tyler Lytle, and Sam Moyer. Yeah, at this point, I guess it just kind of is speculation. It's hard to really figure out where a lot of these guys are until they actually step foot on campus. Obviously, we'll talk about that more later on as time progresses. But let's talk about what's happening with the Buffs right now because they're doing pretty darn well. They're off to a uh, 2-0 and start. Last weekend, they beat a fo their former foe in Nebraska. That was their first win in Lincoln since 2004, 33-27 on a touchdown in the second to last minute of the game, a 40-yard bomb, which has now become the famous Vegas glance among Buffs fans. The play Deuce, call Vegas glance. Deuce, Vegas glance. The, the Vegas glance, which was the play call from offensive coordinator Darren Shiverini there, which was a 40-yard bomb from Montez to Visco, where he pulled the ball down and fended off two defenders. He was in double coverage. I saw a lot of things happen in that game. The defensive line, which struggled a lot a year ago, Kind of, it felt like deja vu in a sense during the first half, right? Nebraska ran for over 200 yards on the ground, four touch touchdowns. That was a weak spot. It looked like they made some adjustments at halftime. But what were your overall takeaways? What did they do well? Where did they struggle? And where, where do they need to improve on going forward if they're going to be in the mix for a Pac-12 championship? Well, first of all, what an incredible atmosphere that was at Memorial Stadium. I actually got to go to the game and uh, sit with the fans and it was um, something I hadn't really experienced before, being together with 90,000 screaming fans in red. Yeah, I bet that's amazing. Our stadium here only holds, what, 655? Right 000, around 50, yeah. 50,000 on a good day? Yeah, we haven't seen 50,000 in a couple of years, but being around 90 is a little bit different. Um, it's, it was an intense game, very physical game. We've seen all the talk on Twitter about that. And Nebraska really played to their strengths. You, you mentioned it. They ran the ball. And they ran it often, and that was their plan. They have a really good offensive line. All of them are above 300 pounds. They've all started games in their career before at Nebraska. No one was new to it. So it wasn't really much of a surprise. I actually thought the defensive line played pretty well for who they were up against. It was more the offensive line that I was worried about. But that's just another part of Nebraska's team that was really, really good. They have some D linemen. They went, they went nine deep on the D-line, and all of them can play at this level. That's just something you don't see yeah. on most teams. And, and, and Coach McIntyre, I think, said it best earlier this week during his press conference where he told us that he, in his time in Boulder, he, don't, he doesn't think he's ever faced a unit that's able to rotate nine guys in who are still the same strength. Now, obviously, this of offensive line is going to have to improve going forward. I know they have uh, a few new starters there with Brett Tons at guard, Kobe Purcell in the middle at center, and Josh Kaiser, although he's a senior, hasn't really seen a lot of time at the starting mm -hmm. position. But 
they need to improve going forward because they're going to have to face against some tough pass rushes. And to add on to that, they're going to throw s these stunt packages, which is what we saw out of Nebraska, especially considering that they have a new quarterback. In well, not a new quarterback, but a guy in Steven Montez who has been rattled a little bit under pressure the past few years. That'll be something that's interested interesting to keep an eye on but I think I'm pretty sure they they improved in the second half and I have some confidence in Clayton Adams their head their offensive line coach yeah I mean all Buffs fans really want to see is improvement from that offensive line they n most of us know that that was the weak link of this team it's, yeah it was pretty obvious going into the season it's obvious now after two games and so as long as there is improvement week to week um, I think that's all you can really expect from this offensive line. They're not going to be great by any means. Um, I'm wondering a little bit what you think if, because Will Sherman came in for that fourth quarter after Josh Kaiser got hurt and looked pretty good. And I'm wondering if, what you think might be the best uh, five on this offensive line is. I really like, to be honest with you, that's a good, that's a really good question, Chase. I really like Sherman. And then I like Purcell in the center. I like Brett Tons. I like Aaron. Aaron Hagler has made tons leaps and strides during his time in Boulder. And who? who and then obviously Tim Lanot. Tim Lanot, who, who you can't take out of the starting I don't know lineup. How I but about him. But yeah, he's he, been he's, he's been, been a little bit. He was a little bit disappointing in the, especially against Nebraska. Not as much against CSU. It it just looked like him and Colby were the ones that were getting beat a lot. And that might just be because Nebraska has some really good nose tackles. Big guys, too. Yeah, that are about 330, they, 350 at, at pounds. center and guard, you typically face against the biggest guys on the offensive mm -hmm. line, right? Those deep, those trenches, nose tackles who really try to split between the A and B gap, respectively, and get to the quarterback. I mean, that's the direct path there. And the other part of Tim is he could not be fully healthy right now. I mean, yeah. the coaches have been saying that he is healthy since basically the start of fall camp. But you really never know coming off a torn Achilles that isn't a great yeah. um, injury to recover from. And that could be part of his struggles. Um, yeah, I would have him, Hagler, Colby Purcell, I think has looked pretty good for his lack of experience, just period. So I think he'll get better every week. And then the question is more on that left side. Um, I think Jake Moretti is in your starting lineup if he's healthy. I think that's pretty obvious. He came in against CSU, was dominant at left guard. He can also play left tackle. If they can get him healthy, he could be a game changer for this offensive line. Yeah, and, and especially considering that um, as it stands now, you really need to dis establish a multi-dimensional offensive attack here because if the buffs become one-dimensional one uh, one in the passing game, teams are just going to keep two safeties deep. It's going to be hard to get these receivers open, and, you know, after seeing Trayvon McMillian look so good in week one against CSU, it looked like he took a little bit of a step back, but that wasn't entirely his fault. Remember, McMillian's a little bit of a bigger bell cow type of back, and it's hard for him to squeeze be between the gaps. Now, one thing that really helped me and I thought was reassuring was the fact that Kyle Evans really came into his own last week against Nebraska. He was able to kind of slither his way in between, pick up nice chunks of yards on first and second down, which really set up those third and manageables that we saw, which kind of opened up the whole field. That's going to be key. But if this offensive line continues to struggle, it's going to be hard to get McMillian going. And I think that's one of the keys to um, this offensive success overall this year. And it has to do with Chef's play calling as well. You can, you can almost be two-dimensional by – only using your receivers if you keep on doing these types of screens and jet sweeps and stuff. But um, even the jet sweeps look pretty easy to defend. Nebraska was defending those fine. CSU obviously had a serious problem defending those. But 
Um, Chev can utilize his wide receivers in different ways where he doesn't look as one-dimensional, but I, I do think that they have to get that run game going, and that starts at the offensive line. Yeah, let's let's take a second to talk about Chev's play calling because with Brian, Brian Lindgren last year, the past few years calling the shots, there were some times where the play calling got kind of questionable. It seemed like it was somewhat predictable, even though they had, they certainly had talent on the offensive side of the ball. With Chev, we've seen a lot of these innovative types of trick plays, and he's put an emphasis on molding his play calling around his his players' strengths, which is what we've seen with these jet sweeps with LaVisca, with these screen passes, with these really creative plays down the field where he gives his guys the best shot to win the game. I mean, that's something that's been impressive about him. Right, and I think you said it best with the word innovative. That's exactly what he's been. He, this offense is really unlike we've seen before with any other offense. He takes ideas from Scott Frost. You saw a bunch of motion against Nebraska where you're sending guys out wide and trying to be unpredictable with the motion. And Chev also does a lot of things with the deep passing game, and we saw that with the Vegas glance as well, and trying to get the ball into his playmaker's hands. And I think he's done a pretty good job of that. Um, if we were talking one week ago, I might have a little bit more praise for Chev. He, he got a little bit predictable, it seemed like, in the middle of the game, but he turned yeah. it around in the fourth quarter. One of the things I liked is how he's moved guys all over the field. Like LaVisca, we've seen, I think, line up at pretty much every offensive skill position. He lined up outside, inside, and then the past two weeks on fourth, on fourth and short, fourth and inches in week one and fourth and – one on week two we've signed we saw him line up as the wildcat quarterback so i think that innovation has really helped them going forward but the, the other thing that i have seen a lot from him is a lot more option is in this offense whether it's the run pass option which they've run a lot with those jet sweeps and other types of things and then also they've done some run option with montez and i don't know if that's just having a more experienced quarterback that can see these things pre-snap and be able to to make the right read on it, but um, we have seen a lot more of that this year than we did last year, and I think one of Montez's strengths that's a little bit underrated about him is his ability to run the ball. He's not the prettiest runner, no. but he can get downhill pretty fast, yeah, and it seems move. like he yeah. he gets pretty good yardage every time he runs. And adding on to that, now it seems like Montez has multiple options with what he's going to do with the ball, not just running, but in terms of who he's going to throw it to. If mm -hmm. his first read or even if his second read isn't open, it seems like he has a good outlet on his third read. But let's talk. Let's let's move move on and talk a little bit about a guy who's made headlines the past two weeks. Lavisca Chenault, Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week, the past two weeks, averaging 194 yards per game and 10 and a half receptions. Coming in, this didn't – now, let, let me tell you guys, this didn't surprise me or Chase. We saw this guy burn it up at practice every time we were let in, and he was the best-kept secret in the Pac-12. I mean, no one was game-planning for this guy. No one expected him to come in and play like he's played. Right, and we saw it a little bit last year. It seemed like every time he was on the field, which wasn't very often, playing behind those senior wide receivers, it seemed like every time he was making a play. And there were people just calling for his name, like, play LaVisca Chenault more. Yeah. I think we talked about that during our preview. And now we're finally seeing what happens when you do play him. And give credit to Coach Cheverini, Coach Adams, and even Coach Roper for finding ways to get this to move this guy around and get the ball in his hands. 
I mean, the thing about LaVisca is I think at this point it's pretty obvious that he's their number one wide receiver. But the justice that he could do in terms of opening up the field for everyone else is really going to be interesting to look at going forward because they do have playmakers. Katie Nixon, we haven't really seen it. At whole. We saw it in game one, but we didn't really see it against Nebraska, is, is a really smaller, shiftier type guy. Juwan Winfrey is a guy with a proven track record. He's going to eventually have a breakout game sooner or later. And Any game have, now. Then you have you know a third or fourth good option like Jay McIntyre or Tony Brown, who can also get open. It seems like every time Jay McIntyre catches the ball, it's either a first down or – I mean, is it just me? It's either a first down or a touchdown. <laughs> right, he's just Mr. Reliable out there. Yeah, I mean, I, lo I love what he's adding to this offense, and he's such a talented player. I have no doubt about it that he'll be a first-round pick uh, when he, whenever he comes out, whether it's after his junior year or after his senior year. He has that type of talent and potential written over him, and people – you know, guys who have been around the business a while have projected that opinion as well forward on Twitter. But, I mean, another guy on the, the, the LaVisca Chenault equivalent on the defensive side of the ball, Nate Landman. And he's a guy who, every time you see him, he's pretty much around the football. He has 29 tackles through two games. The team's two lone interceptions. He's earned the Bronco Nagurski Defensive Player of the Week last week. This guy is only a true sophomore, and he's, ele he's electrifying. It seems like, like I said, every time he's making a play, he's around the football somehow, some way. Yeah, you called LaVisca Chenault the best-kept secret on this team. Uh, I would argue that Nate Landman was probably the worst-kept secret on this team. Every player that I talked to about who was looking good during fall camp, they were all mentioning Nate Landman, and then by the time we got towards the end of fall camp, we started to see Drew Lewis shift to outside linebacker so that they could start Nate Landman, and that is when it basically became obvious that this guy is going to be an impact player for this team, and he has almost exceeded expectations. He's all over the field. That fourth and one stop. Unbelievable. Yeah, I don't even have words for that, that play that he made. He said that wasn't even his right gap. That was just instincts. And yeah. that tackle to make sure that he falls short, just that whole play basically summarizes what he's done. And then on top of that, He's had two interceptions, which yeah. is just something you don't expect out of it. Oh, no, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Every time there's a play on the ball, the ball's tipped up in the air or it's up there. It seems like he's around it. That's what impresses me the most about Nate Lamon. He's the typical sideline to sideline Swiss Army knife type of guy. He can cover. He can blitz. He can be the Mike linebacker who moves around the middle of the field and kind of runs a zone scheme. So, I mean, it's so impressive that he can pretty much do everything. And he's... He's definitely helped their defense take a huge step as well. I mean, DJ Elliott has got to be beaming and, you know, jumping around somewhere with having a playmaker of this caliber. He's a difference maker for this defense, especially stopping the run game. It's It was something that they really, really struggled with last season. That's I mean, that's, that's probably the reason that they didn't make a bowl game. Mm -hmm. And they throw a guy in there this year that is will be the difference why they probably will make a bowl game this year. And – do you think he's potentially helping the defensive line as well? One guy that we expected to be a big difference maker last year was Javier Edwards. Uh, he, was a, he, can't, he was a little bit out of shape. He was getting gassed a lot, having to get rotated out. But this year it seemed like he's slimmed down. He's getting in the gaps more. He's playing better on a consistent basis. And another guy that we can talk about is Mustafa Johnson, the JUCO transfer. He's done a good job of getting to the quarterback. He's, he's 
done a good job helping stop the run. Do you think having a guy like Landman to take the pressure off those two guys has helped mm-hmm. their game? At I also think those two guys have helped take the pressure off Nate Landman. They've, they've been filling yeah, their gaps. They've been doing their sense. job, and it makes Nate Landman's job a lot easier when they aren't getting pushed back three yards right off the snap, what seemed like happened every time last year. Yeah, Javier Edwards, he's been a different guy this year. He's stronger even though he's lost a ton of weight, yeah. and he he just seems more powerful, and he plays with better leverage out there. He's not getting pushed back as much, and that has been a real difference. And then you throw in Mustafa Johnson, who um, Javier Edwards described him best. He's short, chubby, and explosive. Oh, he yeah. is crazy explosive. And some of these offensive linemen just can't handle him because he's like an outside linebacker in a defensive lineman's body. I love another thing I love is the confidence and the versatility that this defensive unit is playing with. I mean, last year we probably wouldn't see them go in at the half, make a bunch of adjustments, and come out and pretty much dominate the run game and make two fourth down stops at midfield, which are the equivalent of takeaways the way we saw them did uh, against Nebraska. I mean, that's something that's impressive to me. It seems like this uh, this unit is more adaptive on the fly and they're m- more willing to make changes. Right. I, I would really like to know – uh, why we didn't see much of that last year. There weren't many second-half adjustments being made. The run game would continue to dominate um, this CU team throughout the entire year in the first half or the second half. And it just seemed like they came out in the second half on Saturday, a, a different defense, ready to stop that run. And I credit goes to DJ Elliott. It, it has to because that's the one that made the adjustments. And they were just a different team in that second half. Now, let me ask you this before we move on to New Hampshire. Do you think, I mean, this is probably an obvious question, but Drew Lewis and Rick Gamboa were the two seniors on this team garnering the most attention at the linebacker position, not just among media members, local media members, but among the national media. Obviously, Drew Lewis's uncle, Louis Riddick, is an NFL analyst. But do you think Nate Lamon is the best linebacker on this team and potentially the best defensive player. I mean, that might be an obvious I answer. Mean, I mean, I could probably argue that he's the best player on this team, and I I almost, I don't want to give myself too much credit, but I did predict that before the season because that's what these guys were telling me, that he looked like the best player in practice during fall camp, and that's exactly what he's come out and done. He's just dominant out there. He's a different player than everybody else. He's on a different level than everyone else. Uh and last year it was kind of Evan Worthington that looked like yeah. that player. We haven't seen much of that, and that could just be because Nate Landman is getting all the tackles that Evan Worthington was last year. And he's he's so dominant, too, and he's getting tackles at all three levels, too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I do expect Worthington to improve, uh, make more plays around the ball at the end of the play in the secondary to maybe get a few interceptions here and there going forward. He's another one that it just seems like he's a little bit banged up right now. He's probably a little banged up, but, I mean, agree with agree, maybe you agree with me on this. I think it's only a matter of time before we really start him and erupting and making plays. I mean, he has all the attributes to be a really good DB. Yeah, so you has some key guys. We've talked about a few of them that have just been a little bit banged up, and they were during preseason. So these next two weeks, I, I'm not sure if we will see much. Evan Worthington this week or LaVisca Chenault because they basically have I I don't want to completely overlook UNH but they basically have two bye weeks in a row which is really good for them to get healthy yeah speaking of UNH I mean they have an FCF's team coming to town that's 0-2 
Their two losses came to Maine and Colgate, who were proje projected to be teams at the bottom of the uh, at the bottom of their respective conference. They've scored 10 points through two games. They have a new quarterback and sophomore Cor Corey Lupoli. I mean, what can, what can we expect to see this week? I'm, I'm hoping to see some of, we talked about this a little bit earlier off the air. I'm hoping to see some of the younger guys on the team now. You know, the Jalen, well, Jalen's probably not going to play this week, it but, you know, the Tony Browns, the Tyler Lytles, the Sam Noyers. I want to see Maurice the Bell. Maurice Bell. Wide receivers. Maybe yep. Dylan Thomas, mm -hmm. Daniel Arias, with, especially with this new redshirt rule where you can play in up to four games and still take a redshirt year. I'm hoping to see what we have, may, maybe a little bit of a preview in these younger guys in, 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 in a sense. Yeah, just to touch on UNH a little bit, um, their starting quarterback, you mentioned the one that will probably start on Saturday, Lupoli, but the one that was supposed to start this year and started their first game uh, went out with a shoulder injury. He didn't play this past week against uh, Colgate, and it doesn't look like he's going to play this week, which I think is what is really hurting that offense. Uh, they throw a backup quarterback that's just very in inexperienced, the sophomore, and they have zero run game. They ran the ball for, I think they ran the ball 30 times this past week for 70-something yards. I don't have it right in front of me, but that's just not going to get it done if you're one-dimensional, especially in this offense. Especially, and especially against a team like the Buffs, mm -hmm. who are coming off an insane psychological high, for lack of a better term, beating you know, a team that, as Bill McCartney said, you'd rather be dead than red. So I think that's going to factor into it as well. I think there's no way that the Buffs don't blow out this team. And I think it's helpful that you have a bye week so early. But having a bye week so early, remember last year they didn't have a bye week until before their very last game of the season. So they had to, on one side, they had to, in, you know, they got a little bit of a breather before they went to play Utah in a game that would determine whether or not they made a bowl. I mean, that... It, it didn't look like it helped against Utah. <laughs> I'll say that. It, it didn't look like having a bye <laughs> helped. But, I mean, it did. It, it, it is a positive in that regard. But earlier this week, Mike McIntyre said, having a bye so early before we have conference play is perhaps the most ideal time of all. It allows us to get ready for a stretch of nine games against teams within our division and in our conference. And it helps us recoup a little bit after suffering some nicks and bruises earlier in the season. I guess it's kind of a way for them to almost ease into the season. Remember, it's still warm outside. They're probably going to still play a couple more games in this weather. I mean, having a bye week early could help them a lot. Right. I think this bye week is probably one of the most ideal weeks that they could have had. They're coming off of two very emotional games against their two biggest rivals. They got a game this week that they can hopefully play some of their younger guys in. And then you have a week to get healthy, and then you have a what would have been a short week playing Friday night against UCLA. So it won't be a short week for them. And remember, them. UCLA is going to be coming off a short week, too, because mm -hmm. they play Fresno State Friday, and then they have to come here. Mm -hmm. on exactly. I so mean, Fresno State Saturday. Saturday, and yeah. Come, and then they come here, they come Friday, here yeah. six days later. So CU will not have that problem. They will have to have a short week against Arizona. They travel to play them uh, on a Friday. So that would probably be the other ideal bye week for them. But, yeah, this is a great spot for them, and hopefully they can use these next two weeks to get healthy and obviously this week to play some freshmen. And I think it is a confidence boost, too, to see other teams struggling so much. And you come into that game 3-0 and feeling like you can potentially win this division and maybe even the conference, depending on how teams do in the teams in the North do. But in terms of their outlook the rest of the way, I was talking with Coach Les from Mile High Sports about this 
uh, earlier this week. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's no reason CU should lose any of their home games. Is is that an overreaction? Um, I don't know about – what What do you mean by no reason? Do you mean that they have I mean, like right a – you're giving them like an 80% chance to win? I'm saying that right now that they have the talent on the field – and the roster to sweep their home schedule. I mean, look, you have a couple flip games. You have to play Utah, which is a very talented team. You have to play Washington State, who, although they haven't really been tested that much thus far, are also doing well. And Arizona State, and, that's and Arizo- probably Arizona State's looking I like think the biggest one right now. Game. They look like they've really turned a corner as a program, um, coming off an impressive 16-13 victory over the ranked Michigan State Spartans. I mean, that's huge as well. But do you think it's possible that they sweep their home schedule? And if if not, who do you think they lose to at home? I think there's definitely a chance that they win out at Folsom. That was one thing that they did during 2016. They they didn't lose at Folsom, and that was something that they took a lot of pride in that season. Coach Mack repeated to them, we don't lose in Folsom. We don't lose in Folsom until it got ingrained in their heads. I'm not sure if he's doing the same thing this year, but I would probably expect that. And... Yeah, the way that the schedule sets up, it looks like they're probably going to be the favorites in every game, at least at home. At minimum, they shouldn't lose more than two games at Folsom mm-hmm. against Utah and against Arizona State. I mean, Washington State, you you expect them to stub their toe eventually, as they commonly do, and they have a much younger roster this year. They've been, They've done well so far, but it's only a matter of time. I think those three games are going to be flips in a sense. And they're going to be those one-score games where it's going to come down to the wire. But after winning a one-score game on the road against Nebraska, I think that helps them and gives this younger team experience playing in those types of confidence uh, in contests where your leadership really shines through and your team chemistry. How are you going to react when James Stefano, who now has, it's been revealed, has a little bit of an injury? But how is your team going to react when when you have two missed field goals? when the run defense struggle struggles early on. How are you going to handle adversity? And I think we got the answer to that on Saturday. Right, and that's something that McIntyre preaches. is it The m- man is how they handle What makes the man is how they handle adversity. That's one of Coach Mack's favorite sayings. No conflict, no story. That's another one he loves to say. It, it's all about how you're able to play in adversity, and they saw a bunch of it throughout four quarters in that game. So... It definitely will give them confidence going in if they have to play a close game. Now, I know it's still early, and we'll talk more about this much later on as well, but if you had to predict what their final record would be, what would it be? Where would they stand? I still like 8-4. and four. Mm-hmm. I. It's tough for me to go any higher than that. My, um, I think I was right around seven wins before the season. Yeah, now that's what I said. I said seven and five. Beat Nebraska on the road, it's looking a little bit better, but eight wins makes a lot of sense. You lose at USC, at Washington. I kind of expect them, obviously Arizona hasn't looked great these first few weeks, but coming off of a short week, having to go in and playing at Arizona, that's going to be a really tough game for them. Let's not forget about that game, too, that playing in the desert late in the fall, and and I believe it's November 2nd, so many weird unknown things Mm -hmm. can happen. So that's going to be a tough game to win as well. So that's probably three that they're going to come in as the underdogs, and then the fourth might be one of those three games that we were just talking about at home, and I'd, I, I like it around eight and four. Yeah, after, Washing, after watching Washington play the first few weeks, 
I don't think they're going to beat the Huskies. I think they're going to mm-hmm. lose that game. USC is a little bit of a flip, but I think USC wins that game as well. And then I think they're going to lose to Utah, and then they're going to lose one of the two games either um, at home against Washington State. I think they play in Pullman against Washington State. They play at home against Oregon State. No, they play at home. Ag- they played on the road. Oh, yeah, yeah. They played on the road against Washington State. But last year. Yeah, they also play at home against Oregon State, which is a game that we I mean, I think, I think, yeah. I think they're going to win against Oregon State. So Washington, USC, and then one of either um, Utah or Washington State or Arizona State. I think they'll lose at least one or two of those games possibly. Yeah, so I think, think we're kind of on the same I page. Think, I think eight and four sounds like mm-hmm. a realistic way to go. But the Denver Broncos, they came out with a bang too. That was a close game. A lot of people expected. You mean, you mean the Denver Phillip Lindsay's? The Denver Phillip Lindsay's, yeah. The forever buff, I think, was the difference maker. Without him, they might not win that game. So they're lucky they took a shot on the hometown hero. But coming in, everyone expected the Seattle Seahawks to be that last place team that everyone beats up on. And everyone forgot that they have probably the most important player on either side of the ball in Russell Wilson as the quarterback, who can pretty much always keep you in the game. He's very underrated in that sense. And then although he held out and had some turmoil in the or within the organization during the offseason, you have Earl Thomas, too. And they both were difference makers on Sunday, but the Broncos were still able to pull out a 27-24 victory over C- Seattle. One of the most polarizing players in that game was quarterback Case Keenum, newly signed Case. Um, there were times where he fit the ball in tight windows. He helped. He made plays down the field, which we didn't see him do a lot last season. He was mainly a short yardage short to mid-range type of guy check the ball down person but we saw him take some nice shots down the field to Emmanuel Sanders and Demarius Thomas he looked good at times and then there was other times where Broncos fans wanted to get up and literally slam their head against the wall it's like what what are you doing what what happened there with Case I, yeah I think you summed it up pretty perfectly there it was just so up and down it was such a roller coaster it's really hard to um, describe his game in a in a better way. I think that's kind of what you're going to get in Case Keenum, but I I expected it more game by game rather than in game. Like he's going to have his good games and he'll also have his bad games. Mm-hmm. That game just seemed like a little bit of both. Yeah. Which I I don't think they expected Case Keenum to come in and be the savior for him. But if he can play consistently well throughout the course of the year, I think this will be a playoff team. I mean, no 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 doubt about it in that regard. Yeah, I mean, you look at the division. I'm going to count the Raiders out right now. Yeah. The Chargers look like crap. Their defense um, underperformed in week one. Yeah. We'll see how that works it works its way out. And then you have the Chiefs, who Mahomes looked unreal. So yeah, that's probably the team that they're going to go up against, which it seems like the AFC West was turning around to where it was going to be more Raiders-Chargers. And then went right back to Chiefs-Broncos right after week one. With that being said, I think that the Chargers and the Chiefs even out at some point. I don't think Mahomes is going to be that good every week. I don't think they're going to get a special teams touchdown from Tyreek Hill. And on the flip side, I think that the Chargers' defense is only going to improve mm-hmm. going forward, especially with Joey Bosa a little bit banged up. Mm-hmm. Derwin James, who is expected to be one of the stars, um, enduring some inevitable growing pains as a rookie. So I think they each even each, each other out. But the man, the hometown hero who scored the Broncos, fittingly scur- sir, uh, scored the Broncos' first touchdown of the season, Philip Lindsay, 102 yards, 
on 17 touches, which included five through the air and 12 on the ground. And this week, he was the only, he was one of the only Pepsi Rookie of the Week nominees to be an undrafted free agent and be taken outside of the first round at that. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think amazing. he was the one that, he was the only one that wasn't taken in the first round. He was an undrafted free agent. Um, the Broncos just kind of know how to utilize him. And yeah. I think they knew that when they signed him as an undrafted free agent. They were going to use him as a returner, as a kick returner, a punt returner. They were going to use him a little bit in the slot. And they're also going to use him a little bit as a change of pace running back. Yeah. And he's looked really good in that role. One thing that stuck out to me is him and Royce Freeman are both going to be integral co components to the success of this offense, especially taking a little bit of, of the pressure off case. But they're pretty much polar opposites. Royce was the guy that the Broncos used down the stretch to be that power back who at the end of the game when the defense is tired, you run between the tackles, you try to run the clock out and control the p your time of possession a little bit. I like him in that regard, and he looked great. And then Phil is a little bit more of a Darren Sproul shifty type of back. Look, I don't see him carrying the ball 20, 25 times a game like he did see at CU. But I could see him getting 20 touches a game if he's hot and if he gets a couple mismatches lined up as wide receiver. So I think that's going to be something that's interesting to keep an eye on. The two rookies, both out of the Pac-12. Right, and you hit it on the head. You don't really have to use your running backs um, in a – in the original way that you expect them to of just handing the ball off to them. We, we see this all the time with your Darren Sproles, your Danny Woodheads, your Rex Austin Eckler. Yeah, your Austin Eckler, who yeah. is um, coming out right now, Western State. A little shout out to Western State. Yeah, native school, and local school. <laughs> yeah, local school. Um, but yeah, you don't have to use them in the natural way that he was used here at CU. You can use them all across the field, in the slot, and behind, in two running back sets, what it, whatever you want, really. He, he's just a versatile running back that has speed, has shiftiness, and he can even run it up the middle like we saw a lot at CU. Yeah, one of the things that's going to contribute to their success, not just in the short term but in the long term, and also with Case Keenum is the Broncos' offensive line. Now, this has been a problem for, what, seemingly two years now? Longer than that. Even, even I, I don't know. I don't even ball. remember it's, when it's the Broncos have had a good offensive it's, it's line. Been a, it's been a while. I meant, I meant two years where they've really struggled, and you yeah. turn on the game, and it's like, can they, can they protect a high school <laughs> – linebacker or defensive end <laughs> yeah. it's uh, i'm talking about that type of struggle and look a lot of people thought this was over when they drafted garrett bowles who at the time was the number one tackle out of college he's had he's like case he's been very polarizing he's had times where he's looked like a jason peters all pro blindside protector out there but he's also struggled and there's you know the whole offensive line as a whole and as a unit more likely has you know sh they they've struggled a lot so what what are they going to mean to this team's long-term success? And I, I, I think it was there was a carryover effect, not just in the running game, but Keenum was rushing the ball out a lot when he felt he didn't have when he felt the pressure bearing down, and he didn't think he had a lot of time to throw. What is all, what is that unit going to mean to them? Well, I thought they looked pretty good, better than they have. It felt like the last two years they're really good in uh, run block. I didn't think they were as good in pass protection. But that's kind of what you get out of Garrett Bowles is he's not going to be the best pass protector. I think we knew that coming out of the draft. But he is a really good run blocker, and he can get downhill fast for you. 
I um, Matt Paradis looked really impressive. I think he graded out as the best center in the NFL. I think on it pro was football the top, the, the third best. But either way, yeah. Yeah, maybe third best offensive lineman, best center, because I did see that tweet today, and it's it seems like he always Pro Football Focus loves Matt Paradis. Yeah, I'm not sure why, but he is one of the best centers in the NFL. And if you can kind of build around those two guys, they're going to be all right. They have a lot more depth at that position than they have in the past couple years. It's not like they're only relying on five guys. There are some guys behind them that could possibly start. Yeah, that's a a really interesting point. And one thing I'm curious to see going forward is if they run more plays out of the gun and they try to run more screen passes where you get guys in space, kind of the way Shiverini has with um, a lot of his players and a lot of his play calling, where you get guys in space and you allow them to make the play, kind of try to take a little bit of the pressure and the focus off of the offensive line in a sense. But, I mean, next week they play one of their arch rivals in the Oakland Raiders, one of the teams that's been very interesting to keep an eye on throughout the offseason, not just with the hiring of John Gruden, who spent the past few years like us talking behind a microphone, but with the tradeaway of Khalil Mack, which was a head-scratcher for people around the league. And then a lot of people expected Derek Carr to kind of return to M- the MVP, MVP form that we saw a few years ago. We didn't see that happen on Monday night at all. He, lo- he looked like the quarterback last year when he was injured. He made a couple really bonehead throws, uh, including two interceptions at the end of the game, which effectively put the game away for them. I mean, I have to think that the Broncos' pa- pass rush is going to create nightmares for this team. Right, and I think John Gruden will go in just wanting to run the football the whole time. That's what made them made the Raiders look pretty good in the first half when they yeah. would just run the football. They, it was old school John Gruden football. They were killing the clock. I don't know what their possession numbers, but it felt like they had the ball the whole entire first half. The Rams would get it, like go score, and then the Raiders would just hold on to it for the rest of the time. And that just didn't happen in the second half because Gruden kind of got out of that. He wanted to throw the ball more, and then that's when you saw Derek Carr make the mistakes that he did in the second half. So. I, the game plan should be keep the ball out of Derek Carr's hands unless you absolutely have to at this point. Yeah, well, one guy who looked good and kind of emerged as a playmaker, at least in week one, was Jared Cook. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of one of those tight ends, almost like Trey Burton with the Eagles, who was kind of buried on a depth chart, so to speak, and, you know, boiled over and emerged really. My question to you, do you put Chris Harris on him the whole game and say, you got to find another way to beat us. You stack eight in the box. You put <laughs> Harris man-on-man with Cook and say, remember, they're getting Martavis Bryant back. They didn't really throw the ball a lot to Amari Cooper, which was interesting and strange in a lot of ways. But do you just stick Harris on, on Cook and say, you got to beat us, Decar? Well, the, the tight end has kind of been the Broncos' Achilles heel for quite a while. They haven't really figured out how to cover the tight end. So it'll be interesting to see what they try to do. Um, it's also clearly a Wade Phillips problem. You can't figure out how to cover the tight end either. Yeah. Um, it looked like that the Raiders just wanted to go away from Marcus Peters and Aqib Tlaib, which isn't a bad idea at all. And I no. bet you the Raiders will also try to figure out how to stay away from the Broncos' corners. So if Chris Harris is in the slot, they might try to start hitting it out wide. Who knows? Yeah, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on the Broncos' long-term success going forward. I think, personally, they're going to start off 2-0, and, you know, they have a good shot at making the playoffs this year. But one team that's emerged in a playoff race right now, the Colorado Rockies, and just like Case Keenum was on Saturday, 
They look polarizing. One game, they'll look like a team. They're, they're sitting in first place right now currently, a game and a half in front of the Dodgers. But some games, they'll look like a team that's a legitimate threat to go out and win a pennant. And then other games, they'll look at, like last night against the Arizona Diamondbacks, they'll look absolutely snake snake bit no pun intended i mean <laughs> it was four three going into the eighth that seems yesterday. like a pun was intended it maybe a pun was a little <laughs> bit intended there but it's a good it's a good analogy for the situation i mean last <laughs> night they go into the eighth inning down four to three they put their best reliever in the game in adam Adovino, and he lets up two runs then you go into the ninth inning you get a leadoff double from carlos gonzalez you get a bunt single from ryan mcmahon you have first and third no one out you can't even push a run across. I mean, it looks like they they couldn't hit a so, uh, beach ball thrown underhand, their offense sometimes. But other times, they'll come out, Trevor Story will hit three home runs, they'll put 12 runs on the scoreboard. I mean, it's just hard to really gauge where you, what you're going to get out of this team. And that's, that's kind of, I think, what makes me nervous um, about them down the stretch. So current score update, Diamondbacks are up 3-0 on the Colorado Rockies. We're in the middle of the third. Um, so... That's not looking good. Obviously, we haven't gotten to watch much of the game at all there. So, um, but one, the but well, adding adding to that, one 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 of those polarizing guys that's starting tonight for the Rockies is Mr. Gray, John mm-hmm. Gray. I mean, at the beginning of the season, he came out of the gate struggling. He had an ERA over six. Since that point, he's had one of the lowest ERAs in the NL. And then tonight, he gives up three runs in the top of the second. I mean, it's to my point, it's just. Je- very Jekyll and Hyde out of this team. Right, and you you have to have guys that you can rely on on your team. Adam Adovino has been that guy for this team. Obviously, he wasn't last night, so they don't really have anybody else in the bullpen that they have been able to rely on night in, night out. A little bit of Sung Wan Oh, he hasn't been horrible, but the rest of the bullpen have definitely had their nights where they just blow up, and it's the same way with the starting pitching. John Gray has been a completely different pitcher since he went down in AAA and fixed yeah. whatever he had to fix. And he has become a guy that you could rely on besides maybe these last two starts. They've really been able to rely on Kyle Freeland, but they yeah. need a few starters, at least three starters that they can rely on down the stretch. And it just doesn't look like that right now, but maybe that can and, and not just a few starters either. A couple guys who can come out of the bullpen yeah. and get outs on a consistent basis. Obviously, they've kind of steered away from Brian Shaw after his season-long struggles. But Wade Davis, you know, he'll come in and strike out the side one night. And then the next night, he won't get an out and he'll give up two long balls. I mean, it's just, it's just hard to rely on this team. But let me say this. If they play th- their best ver- uh, as their best version, it, you know, later into September – there's no reason that they shouldn't win the National League pennant, in my opinion. True or false? True. Absolutely. Well, especially in the NL West pennant. Maybe, I don't know about the NL pennant right now, just because the Cubs have looked pretty good. The Braves good. have kind of come on The as Braves, well. yeah. yeah. That, that part will be interesting. But, yeah, they should definitely win the NL West if they can play to their full potential. The Rockies play. But you can't yeah. lose games to the Diamondbacks in a four-game series and expect to win the NL West. Yeah, the Rockies play two more games against the Diamondbacks at home. Those are going to be crucial because if they lose them, then all of a sudden they're in second or third place. The Dodgers won today, so depending on how the rest of their uh, series against the Red goes, Reds go. The Broncos 
have a key game coming up against a division rival. And of course, the Buffs, obviously, we've talked a lot about their game against New Hampshire, but it's, it's important to go into your bye week with a good taste in your mouth. So it'll be in- interesting to see them as well. Anyway, that's all the time. Well, let's do some score predictions score for the Buffs. Score predictions, and, maybe, and then we'll leave you guys. May- maybe some other predictions, like uh, this is. I don't know, top performer or something top like performer. that on right. offense. Well, we'll give you some predictions to go away, and then we'll leave you for today. I think that the Buffs are going to win 38-3 against New Hampshire. That's the final score I'm predicting. Okay, I'll give them some more points. Oh, okay. And we'll get, you got to give us a rationale, too, because... got Man, they got... They have to put up... They put up... They put up 45 against CSU and 45 33 45 and 33, Nebraska. so... I gotta go like forty nine seven. That's gotta. That's my prediction. Forty nine seven. They're gonna crush New Hampshire. It'll be over by the first half. They'll probably score. I want to say thirty five, maybe thirty one points in the first half, and then just let it ride from there. Yeah, I mean the big question though that I posed earlier: Do we see some of the younger guys? Do we see a little bit of a preview into seasons to come? I I certainly hope so. It'll be interesting to see which quarterbacks play. That, that'll be the story of the game. I think there's no doubt that the – I mean, obviously, the team doesn't want to go out and say anything, but I think there's no doubt in my mind that the Buffs go out and win this game by at least at least four touchdowns. But do we see some of the younger guys get in on the action? I would really like to see Tyler Lytle throw the ball a little bit and Sam Norrie throw the ball a little bit. Against CSU, they came in, but um, they didn't run any pass plays because yeah, we they were up so much. Yeah. And I kind of – I know Mac has a good heart. He doesn't want to run the score up on anybody. But there is another side of it that you kind of want to see what you get out of the young guys. So I hope the UNH coach, Sean McDonald, is a little bit um, understanding that they might have to throw the ball a little bit in the fourth quarter just so they can see what they have. Yeah, and I don't think it's completely classless either because aside from practice where they face up against the same guys day in and day out, they really don't get much live action, so I think at some point you got to take the training wheels off and let the, let's see what we have here. Right, it's not like the preseason in the NFL where you you can start your third, second, and third stringers and see what you really have out of these guys. College football doesn't get that type of benefit, so that's kind of why you want to schedule the FCS teams. And I just hope that McIntyre doesn't feel bad about running up the score and lets these guys play. Cause uh, yeah, the most disappointing thing would be to see. Tyler Lytle and Blake Stenstrom come in and just hand the ball off. Hand the ball off. Yeah, I mean, that gets that gets boring. I think at some point you just got to see what you have. Mm-hmm. And we will get, speaking of the running backs, we will get to see a lot of um, Alex Fontenot and maybe some Deion Smith if Deion he's healthy Smith. Yeah. and some of the other running backs. I know Jack Broussard's hurt. We won't see any of him. but He's I, probably going to take a redshirt year, I would assume. I am interested in some of those yo- younger running backs because both Kyle Evans and Trevon McMillan are – going to be gone next year the younger running backs but also what about the younger wide receivers and some of the guys in the secondary one guy i think uh who's getting ready to have a big impact on the buffs in years to come is darion rakestraw the former wide receiver who uh converted to defensive back he was a backup corner for sometimes sometime last year and now he's listed as the backup strong safety on the depth chart are we i mean I, ho- I hope to see a little bit out of him and chris miller i'm with you back to full strength as well yeah, we, we should see a lot of Chris Miller. I, d- I expect him to play even in the first quarter just because we haven't gotten to see him at all, and he's supposed to be one of the top cornerbacks on this team. But um, 
Yeah, Rakestra is a very interesting case. This is his third position in three years here yeah. at CU. Last year he was Certainly a cornerback. He's played a little bit of special teams mm-hmm. as well. Here yeah, he's that. he's great on special teams, but he came in against CSU and made some plays. Yeah. I was impressed with his ability to get to the ball. So, um, yeah, I definitely hope to see that because they need – some guys that are capable of playing behind their safeties because there just isn't much depth there. Yeah, and guys who have suffered from injuries in the past, too, Worthington going out in week one, and Fisher, um, at who suffered from a lingering hamstring for pretty much all of last season as well. But at the wide receiver position, who, who are you looking at? I'm looking at Dimitri Stanley. We saw him a little bit in week one. I'm looking at Dari- Daniel Arias, who is – when mm-hmm. I stand next to him, I mean, he looks like a giant. He's, what, 6'4"? <laughs> six, six, yeah, he's got to be still growing because it feels like every time I see him, yeah. he's taller. He might yeah, even be 6'5 at this point. Yeah, he, he's a big guy. But Stanley, um, Arias. And Maurice Bell, for Maurice sure. Bell. He he made a ton of plays during fall camp. It seemed like we were always hearing about him. They just don't have enough room to play him this year. But I definitely think we're going to see him a lot in the future, hopefully on Saturday. Um, I would have really liked to see Jalen Jackson this weekend. He will, will. He's still nursing that foot injury. He'll sit out these next two weeks, but he'll probably be back for UCLA. And they will um, find some ways to get the ball in his hands because he can be a different oh, difference he, maker he with was, his speed. He was a, when, when we watched him um, in fall camp, he was he was a bona fide playmaker. He mm-hmm. was always making plays. He's one of those guys that we um, that you kind of just have to have a few packages. To, to yeah, yeah, to just let him go out there and make plays, which they did with like Katie Nixon and Visca last year. Yeah. What about Dylan Thomas? Do we see him? I think we're gonna see a lot of freshmen. There's there's no reason not to play him in this game because you have four games to let him play. Um, I don't think Arias is gonna redshirt. He's been playing a lot on special teams these past two games, so it will be interesting to see if they show those um, freshman wide receivers that are gonna redshirt. And what at uh, what point do you put those guys in? I mean, if you're up 28-3, say, I mean, and New Hampshire's looking horrible, do you pull the plug after the first half and t- let the young guys play the entire? It sort of depends because we know that Lavisca Chenault got a little bit banged up with his shoulder, so I, I will. If it were up to me, I wouldn't play him that much. Katie Nixon banged up his ankle a little bit. He's been back at practice. He's been fine, but he's also a little bit banged up. Obviously, Jawan was dealing with hamstring ins- issues in the fall, and I think he also tweaked his ankle yeah. um, this past weekend. So I don't expect to see a lot of Jawan because he needs to get fully healthy. He can be a difference maker for them. So if they want to sit those three guys that are a little bit banged up, then we should see the, the wide receivers pretty early. That's a good point. Anyway, we'll be back at you next week to recap the New Hampshire game, talk a little bit about how the Buffs have adjusted to their bye, and also to look ahead – as well this has been the howl the newly renamed howl stern uh wednesday evening sports show and we'll talk to you next time